0: For Julian Fantino and Dudley Laws, 1988 was the year that changed everything. The events of that year would set each of them down very different paths, paths that would define their lives and change Canadian history. And it all began with the kind of event that had become commonplace in the city of Toronto the killing of a black man by the police. threatening us with a knife, we need the now, The officers
2: say that they came into this room, that they found Lester Donaldson on a bed, that he was threatening them with a knife, and that he refused their command to surrender the knife right away.
0: Lester Donaldson had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He had been confronted by five police officers who pushed him against the wall with his mattress, and then one of them, David Devney, shot him in the chest, killing him right there in his bedroom. The knife that he was allegedly wielding was a small paring knife with a snapped-off tip. Soon after Donaldson was killed, a group of Black activists got together and decided enough was enough. It was time to fight back in an organized fashion. Lennox Farrell was one of them.
3: So we came up with the name Black Action Defence Committee.
0: The Black Action Defence Committee, or BADC for short became the most high-profile organization fighting the cops in Toronto. And their spokesperson was a man named Dudley Laws.
3: We have a responsibility
4: to our community and to our people and to the citizens of this city to stand up and shout racism when we see it. Dudley speaks for me! Dudley speaks for me!
3: was humility, personified. Dudley Laws was. But man, when Dudley took him a case, he was like a tiger when he bit into something.
0: Born in Jamaica, Dudley Laws was a committed follower of Marcus Garvey's revolutionary Pan-African philosophy. He'd worked as a taxi driver, a welder, a mechanic, and an immigration consultant. But activism was his true calling. He spoke with clarity and passion and his brilliant white beard and signature black beret soon became known to thousands of Torontonians.
3: He had a stentorian voice. He didn't need a, me- a megaphone to be heard. When he spoke, his voice was as big as his character. And his voice, when he spoke, spoke um, very slowly, but every, not every word, every syllable and every word had an impact on him when he spoke. He was a special, special, special kind of person. The new of Dudley Laws was like East, West, North, or South. Another point of the compass, so to speak.
0: Laws and the Black Action Defence Committee were soon able to get the issue of police brutality onto the political agenda. But around the same time, a rising star within the Toronto Police Department was about to make waves. In late 1988... Julian Fantino became the commander of 31 Division, which includes one of Toronto's biggest black communities, the Jane and Finch neighborhood. According to news reports from the time, many black residents were upset by what they saw as Fantino's high-handed and dismissive approach. They described the increased police presence in the area as a siege. And then, only a few months into his tenure, Julian Fantino became a national news story.
2: Good evening. Our top story tonight, more problems for Metro Police over statistics released yesterday. Numbers that associated blacks with crime in the Jane Finch area His community groups speaking out.
0: Speaking to the Race Relations Committee of North York, Fantino said that though black people made up just 6% of the population in the Jane and Finch area, they were responsible for 82% of the muggings, 55% of the purse snatchings, and 51% of the drug offenses.
1: There are a lot of good officers at 31 Division who've worked over the years with the black community. I don't count
0: Mr. Fantino as one of those individuals.
2: Staff Inspector Fantino was not at work here at 31 Division today, so he was unavailable for comment. But a press release out of police headquarters quotes Chief Jack Marks as calling the entire situation regrettable.
0: Fantino claimed that a member of the Race Relations Committee asked him to compile those statistics. The committee denied that was the case. And Dudley Laws? He accused Fantino of deliberately making those statistics public in an attempt to smear the black community. Over the next few years, both Dudley Laws and Julian Fantino would move up in their respective worlds. Laws and the Black Action Defense Committee were able to pressure the Crown into laying charges against David Devney, the officer who killed Lester Donaldson. But the cop was acquitted two years later. Farrell was protesting outside the courthouse the day of the ruling.
3: But when the officer came out, came out of the courthouse, we were demonstrating outside the courthouse, he lit the cigar and then blew the smoke at us. That was so, you know, that was so insulting, so so deliberately debilitating.
0: The arrest of the officer who killed Lester Donaldson and the protests by the Black Action Defence Committee enraged the Toronto police. For three hours, cops across the city refused to do their jobs. The head of the Toronto Police Union threatened that the police, quote, are going to be reluctant to arrest black people, and they'll just take over the city. And Julian Fantino, who was seen as a straight-shooting cop who didn't care about politically correct nonsense, was promoted to the head of the Toronto Police Detective Service. In the intervening years, Dudley Laws and Batsy scored more victories, including the creation of a Civilian Review Commission for Police Misconduct. But Laws would soon have a very public fall from grace. In 1991, he was arrested on charges that he had conspired to smuggle illegal immigrants into Canada and the U.S. Here he is speaking about the charges in the documentary, Dudley Speaks for Me.
4: I would like to thank my community... And the people who support me through this ordeal. As far as the allegations are concerned, it will come out in court and people will see that the charges that have been laid against me are false.
0: Over the next few years, court proceedings would reveal the lengths that the police went to to investigate Dudley Laws, the most prominent police critic in the city. Dozens and dozens and dozens of officers. Wiretaps and undercover agents. Millions of public dollars. And all of it began at the behest of the man who would go on to be the most famous cop in Canada, Julian Fantino. Over the last few months, thousands of Canadians have marched against police brutality and systemic racism. Calls to defund the police have rung out in the streets. From Vancouver to Halifax to Iqaluit, the very existence of the police is being called into question. So in this season of Commons, that's what we're going to be examining. The police. It's practically redundant to say that the police are powerful. They can legally spy on you. They can detain you against your will. They carry guns and they are allowed to use them. But their authority extends far beyond that. The police are also politically powerful. They often get what they want from legislatures and city councils, and they're lionized by certain segments of the press. Because of their power and influence, standing up to the police can be a dangerous task. And that's how I want to kick off this season, with stories of people who fought the cops and about what happened to them. And we're going to take that journey by following the career of probably the most high-profile cop in Canadian history, Julian Fantino. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Julian Fantino is by any measure an enormously successful cop. And for many Canadians, he's come to be the very embodiment of law and order. Here he is answering questions during a call-in show when he was commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police.
3: Hello, uh, Commissioner Fantino. Hello
4: there. I wanted to ask you, would you consider running for a mayor? (laughs) (laughs) Please, because we really need a person like you who can really protect us from all these criminals. Because uh, we really need a person like you. So would you do
3: that, please?
4: Seriously. There you go. Would you do it? You have to answer, Yannick. Well, right now, I'm... You're tied up. I'm staying totally focused on, on what I consider to be one of the best jobs anywhere. Thank you for the vote of confidence. Much appreciated. Julian Fantino rose to be the chief of four different police forces.
0: London, York Region, Toronto, and the OPP. He became a minister in Stephen Harper's cabinet. He's a frequent commentator on criminal justice issues. And for two decades, he's been probably the most influential police voice in English Canada.
2: I mean, if there is a higher profile police officer, who is it? You know, I mean, mean, who is it? You tell me.
0: That's Jerry Amernick, a longtime journalist and the co-author of Julian Fantino's memoir, Duty, The Life of a Cop. What you think of Fantino probably depends on what you think of the justice system more broadly. Jerry Amernick spent a lot of his journalistic career advocating for the rights of crime victims. And for him, Julian Fantino was someone on the right side of history.
2: I think he felt for victims of crime, uh, all types of victims of crime, and, and felt that there wasn't enough done for them.
0: But if you think that the police have too many powers, that the justice system is skewed against the poor and the marginalized, you probably think less of Fantino. What's undeniable, though, is his influence. So, who is Julian Fantino? Well, I
2: think Julian Fantino, the person, and Julian Fantino, the cop, are not that all that different, to tell you the truth. He's an interesting guy. He's an immigrant, he came to Canada at the age of 11, didn't speak English, and went to work at, I think he had to quit school at the age of 15 to go to work to help his family.
0: Fantino was born in Italy and came to Toronto at a time when discrimination against Italians was still prevalent. He got into police work through a job that he had as a security guard at a department store. And early in his career, he was going undercover with the Italian mafia. You
2: know, I think of the movie, you know, The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, which I think have to be two of the best films ever made. The only person I ever knew who didn't think much of the movie was Julian Fantino. He just thought it was so melodramatic, and he, he didn't seem to think it was that realistic. And this was a guy who would work with these characters, right?
0: Fantino was by all accounts a meticulous police officer. He had a knack for dealing with people and was one of the few cops who didn't mind doing the paperwork. And he rose quickly within the ranks of the Toronto Police Department. He was in the drug squad, in intelligence, and then in homicide. And on some big issues, he was well ahead of his time. He was pushing for stronger laws to combat money laundering at a time when few thought that that was a serious issue. And Fantino gained a reputation for being a straight talker who just said it like it is. But there's one thing that stands out to me when I look at Julian Fantino's record. Having read his memoir and hundreds of articles that trace his career, it's clear that Fantino does not abide any criticism of the police or how they do their jobs. And the impression that I get is that he viewed those critics as enemies. He's the kind of guy who's got a lot of supporters, got a lot of detractors.
2: If Julian Fantino was your friend, I would say you probably don't have a more loyal friend in the world who would back it to the end. But I don't think you would want to have him for your enemy, you know?
0: <laughs> One of those men that Fantino viewed with enmity was Lennox Farrell, who you heard from at the top of the show. Farrell was born in Trinidad and Tobago and moved to Canada to attend the University of Toronto in
3: 1969. I always say that I was was carved in Trinidad, but polished in Canada.
0: He arrived in January, and in March, he had his first run-in with the police. Farrell was on the subway when some men pulled him out of the subway car and marched him into the booth where they sold the tickets. They kept him there for hours, well after the subway stopped
3: running. Before I left, I asked the attendant because I'd known him, I travel here regularly, so I knew the uniform, knew him, what had happened. And he said that they were the police. And they had held me because I looked like someone who had snatched a woman's purse. And I was mortified. What do people think? That I come to Canada to snatch somebody's purse? Oh, what a disgrace in my appearance has sort of been. And I still feel modified over that experience more than 50 years ago.
0: That was Lennox Farrell's first experience with the Toronto police. But it was far from his last. Over the years, Farrell had countless more run-ins. As a student and then as a teacher, the humiliations didn't stop.
3: I was pulled over at least nine times in one particular year or so. Because I looked like someone who had robbed a bank or someone who had done some stuff. In the old days, when a slave ran away, there'd be the slave catchers looking for runaways. We, in our time, were not runaways, but we were at large. When the police saw you, they could stop you, humiliate you, do whatever they wanted.
0: He remembers one time that he was on his way to work when a police officer decided to pull him over he took Farrell out of his car and made him put his hands on the hood as he ran his plates and looked in the vehicle. And then he left. Farrell was late for class, so he had to explain to his colleagues what had happened.
3: And one fellow teacher, he and I are very close, he said to me, but Lennox, what did you do? That was worse than the police pulling me, because he, "What, what, what did you do? He couldn't comprehend as a fellow teacher, as someone to whom I was very, very close, as a white person, That the police could just pull me over, willy-nilly, on any other black person. By
0: the time Julian Fantino became the commander of the area that included Jane and Finch, Farrell had been an anti-racist activist for years. He'd written an article denouncing police raids of black neighborhoods, which he said happened in a cyclical manner. One year it would be Regent Park, another year it would be St. Jamestown. And the article raised Fantino's ire.
3: I wrote an article titled, Jane Finch, your turn is next. And I understand that Mr. Fantino was very, very taken by it because he had a meeting with members of the black community and was shaking the document saying, Look at this, is this, is this what a leader of a community would be writing?
0: But his most disturbing interaction with Fantino's 31 division officers didn't even happen to him directly. Instead, it happened to his spouse. One Sunday, his wife Joan was at a shopping mall in Jane and Finch near where they lived and the police arrested her. The charge? They claimed that she had been spotted shoplifting at a different mall on the other side of town two Sundays ago.
3: Now, normally, on a Sunday afternoon, as teachers, we'd be home, you'd be finishing marking papers, getting your stuff ready, We had children, get their lunches prepared, that kind of stuff, and so So we would have been home.
0: But luckily, on the day the police were saying she was out shoplifting, Joan had been at a banquet with dozens and dozens of other people, including members of the Ontario Parliament.
3: She was ironclad. They picked the wrong time to arrest her. If she had stayed home that that Sunday, today my dear spouse would have had a criminal record against her name.
0: If the charges had stuck, Joan would have been fired from her teaching job and wouldn't have been able to cross the border to visit her family.
3: This is the kind of impact that a police officer can have on your life. I mean, including death. I wouldn't say they're omnipotent, but the power that the police have is almost that of omnipotence. On your family, on your life, on your career, etc., etc., etc.
0: Now, I want to be clear that Lennox Farrell isn't alleging that Julian Fantino himself targeted his wife. But there are a number of examples of prominent police critics finding themselves in Fantino's crosshairs. Some were surveilled, some had damaging personal information about them leaked to the press, and some, like Dudley Laws, were arrested and charged. Laws, as you'll recall, had come to be one of the most recognizable black activists in Toronto.
4: We have protested long and hard against this racist, brutal, murderous police force.
0: And he was polarizing. To many black Torontonians, he was fighting against the worst kinds of racism. But to much of the establishment, and especially to the police, he was a dangerous radical who had to be brought to heel. And in 1991, it appeared that they had done just that. Dudley Laws was arrested on charges that he had conspired to smuggle illegal immigrants into Canada and the US. The police had tipped off the press about the arrest, so TV cameras were rolling when he was taken in. The investigation into Dudley Laws had been all-encompassing. It involved 75 different people from three different law enforcement agencies, including the RCMP and the Toronto Police. They had wiretapped him and sent in undercover agents. The Black Action Defence Committee claimed that it cost the public about $6 million in total. And at the end of the day, Dudley Laws was charged with accepting a few thousand dollars to help four people illegally cross the border. Normally, the police don't devote these kinds of resources to such a low-level offence.
3: They were determined to soil Dudley's name. They were determined to bring him... Man-sized, so to speak. It's sad that they would have spent the people who have the responsibility for law-keeping in the province could be so egregious in terms of their actions for someone who was trying to enforce them for keeping the law.
0: Immediately, the perception amongst the Black Action Defense Committee was that this was a political prosecution. And the details of how this all came together lend some credence to that idea. It all starts with Julian Fantino. After serving as the commander of 31 Division, Fantino had been promoted to be the head of all detective operations for the police. And what Fantino told the court was that one day, he got a call from a U.S. immigration agent The agent supposedly told Fantino that they had apprehended five undocumented people trying to sneak across the Canadian border into Vermont, and that one of them had been carrying a business card with Dudley Laws' name on it. Now there's a few weird things about that story. Fantino didn't take any notes about the call. He didn't even remember the name of the agent who contacted him. And then, there's a question of why a U.S. immigration agent would be calling up a Toronto police officer to begin with. Why not the RCMP? Fantino then did get in contact with the RCMP, and the two forces launched a joint investigation into Dudley Laws. They got a wiretap on his phones, even though immigration fraud wasn't a crime covered by wiretap legislation at the time. And what did they hear? Nothing. They heard no evidence, of any kind of smuggling at all. So then, they sent in an undercover officer to try to get Laws to smuggle someone across the border. Laws turned down the officer, so they sent in another. Finally, Laws did agree to take some men across the border. The cops claim that they told Laws he'd be smuggling criminals. Laws says that they made this up entirely. What's not in dispute? is that Dudley Laws did eventually help undercover officers cross the border. Shortly after he initiated the investigation into laws, Julian Fantino left Toronto to become the chief of the London Police Department. But others at the Toronto Police finished what he started. Lennox Farrell says that the lengths that Fantino and the rest of the police were willing to go to try to put Dudley Laws in prison were extraordinary.
3: The number of people who they put after Dudley was a statement of how significant they also saw him. <laughs> we knew him as being someone who was of stature. They certainly saw him as someone who was too big for his breeches. I guess. A black man getting up and saying that the Toronto police are the most dangerous in, in North America.
0: Laws was convicted and sentenced to nine months in prison and a $5,000 fine but the conviction was eventually overturned on appeal, and the charges were ultimately dropped. This whole ordeal lasted for seven years.
3: After that, he was vastly diminished, but not in terms of his character, not in terms of his determination, his love for his people, his love for humanity, his strength of um, purpose, fortitude.
0: No one will ever be able to completely prove that the cops threw everything they had at Dudley Laws because he was a police critic. But there was one tantalizing bit of evidence that emerged during the trial. A former lover of a high-ranking Toronto police detective said in court that she had been told that the police, quote, really, really wanted to catch this guy. It's a top priority because he's a really outspoken black activist against the police force. Julian Fantino completely denied that there were any political motivations to the case. He testified that doing such a thing would be morally corrupt. At around the same time that Fantino began looking into Dudley Laws, another police reformer was gaining prominence.
1: My name is Susan Eng and I was chair of the Police Services Board in Toronto from 1991 to 1995. It was an important time for police accountability because we had just come out of a series of police shootings of young Black men, and it seemed to become a a real tinderbox between the black community and the police. And it was in that atmosphere that I was appointed first as a part-time member and ultimately became chair.
0: Susan Eng joined the police board in 1989, the same year that Fantino was making headlines as the commander of 31 Division. Now you need to understand how most local police forces are governed in this country the chief of police is usually accountable to a civilian board made up of people appointed by different levels of government. That civilian control is one of the most important principles in Canadian policing. It's supposed to ensure that the police are accountable to the public. But that's not what Susan Eng saw when she joined the Toronto Police Board.
1: Their major aim was to stay exactly as they were and to not countenance any kind of community input and especially not criticism. When I got there, I saw that despite what the law said about the role of the police board, that was not at all how the police service behaved. The police board was thought of as a nice adjunct to the police service, which set its own goals and priorities and spending. And the board was meant to uh, rubber-stamp it. So it was completely opposite to what I thought was going on.
0: In her first few meetings, the board was beginning the process of selecting a new police chief. They spent some time going over the qualities they should look
1: for in applicants. So somebody just said, "Okay, we're going to decide. And it was clear to me that they had already decided, that behind-the-scenes lobbying had already taken place, And they weren't going to waste any more time considering the options. Bill McCormick
0: won the vote and became the new chief. But Eng voted for someone else. And another board member leaked the details of the secret vote
1: to the Toronto Sun. So that's how I became not the favourite board member of the police chief. By the time she was appointed
0: chair of the police board, Susan Eng was already a controversial figure. She was viewed by the senior brass and the right-wing press as essentially anti-cop.
1: I never said a word different from what the law actually said, which was that the board was the governing authority, that police standards of conduct were accountable. But I think it was because of who was saying it that was getting under their skin. They did have a female chair before, but they had not had a non-white person chair before. And I think if a man had said the same things I had, they might have gotten over it. It
0: wasn't long before Susan Eng started to hear whispers.
1: I heard the rumors and I decided they were rumors. And if they were real, so what?
0: What Eng was hearing was that the Toronto police, who ostensibly reported to her, had created a secret file on her that contained all kinds of innuendo, that she had vague connections to Asian gangsters in Hong Kong and in Canada.
1: But what were they going to do with that file? And did it exist? I don't know. Was I going to make any effort to find it? No. But what Eng didn't know
0: at the time was that the police interest in her went much, much deeper. And like the investigation into Dudley Laws, It all began with Julian Fantino. Despite the rancor that he had caused when he released those statistics about black crime and Jane and Finch, Fantino had continued to rise through the ranks. And as you'll recall, by 1991, he'd become the head of the detective services. He worked out of the Toronto Police Headquarters, which is also where the police board conducted their business. And Fantino later claimed that he became suspicious of a man who he saw in the hallways of the Toronto Police Service building. That man wasn't wearing a visitor's badge, so Fantino took it upon himself to investigate. That man was Peter Maloney. Here's Susan Eng again.
1: In the early days on the board, there was so much tension that most people were afraid to be seen with me. There were two or three people that I could speak to honestly, thoroughly, to understand what was going on, what should I do next. One of my closest friends, and still is, is Peter Maloney. And he was then a criminal lawyer.
0: Maloney is a gay man and was the first openly gay person to run for office in Canada. For two decades, he had been a prominent LGBT activist. But Fantino decided that Peter Maloney needed to be put under surveillance. The ostensible reason was that Maloney had been one of the almost 300 men arrested in the notorious Toronto bathhouse raids in 1981. In fact, he was a co-owner of one of the bathhouses. Here's Derek Finkel, a longtime journalist who investigated this story for over a decade.
5: It's remarkable that they would use a man who had been Arrested, never convicted in the bathhouse raids, that that was seen as a form of criminal past and that that was a justification for having him surveilled. I mean, really what they were doing was they were going on a, on a deep dive fishing expedition against Susan Eng, but they were kind of using, I believe, Peter Maloney to do that.
0: Fantino brought in a man named Gary Carter, a seasoned undercover officer, to look into Peter Maloney and Susan Eng. And Fantino made it clear that this all had to be done quietly.
5: Carter is quoted as saying, when I met with him, Fantino said, like, this is very sensitive and this goes nowhere, and if it does, like, my ass and the chief's ass are done. They understood the stakes. But they also felt it was important, like the risk-reward for them
0: seemed to work out. Early in their investigation, the police actually stumbled on some serious crimes. Someone was using Peter Maloney's phones to arrange drug deals. It became clear very quickly that Maloney himself wasn't involved, but it was enough to get wiretap warrants from a pro-police judge. The drug investigation eventually branched off into a massive undercover operation targeting the Italian mafia called Project Adam. As that investigation progressed, Julian Fantino would leave to go to be the chief of the London police. But the Toronto police didn't stop surveilling Peter Maloney and Susan Eng.
5: And then these two detectives,
0: one's name was Tom Klatt, and the
5: other was Jim Downs, they were brought in to just deal with the maloney Ang part of it.
0: So normally, when police are listening in on a wiretap, they have to have civilian monitors present to ensure that they're only recording things that are relevant to the investigation.
5: They were so desperate to keep it from becoming public knowledge that they didn't just hire regular monitors.
0: They actually hired monitors who were married to Toronto police officers.
5: I guess the idea
0: was that they were more you know, trustworthy uh, or less likely to leak. They even went so far as to have police officers secretly follow Maloney and Eng to restaurants so that they could spy on them.
1: But I never did anything seditious, and I had nothing to say that was of interest to anybody. So the people on surveillance had free dinners in the same restaurant that we were at for nothing.
0: And it even went further than that. We know today that during their wiretaps, the police didn't stop recording if what they were hearing was irrelevant. They just kept on listening. Derek Finkel has listened to some of those tapes.
5: You know, I remember one call was about, I can't remember if it, was a, if it was about Maloney's partner or a good friend who had been hospitalized and sounded like he wasn't doing very well and, you know, and she's being sympathetic and trying to support him. And So, you know, there were very personal phone calls that were recorded unlawfully, really. I mean, there's not, there's not really any debate about it. It's very clear that those conversations were not done under the judicial authorization, which is disturbing.
0: A memo about the investigation was even sent to the chief of police himself, Bill McCormick. After reading the memo, he allegedly told his underlings that he just never wanted to see it again. So I just want to recap what's happened here. Susan Eng becomes the chair of the police board in 1991. She clashes publicly with the chief, and in that same year, Julian Fantino, then a very senior officer, orders surveillance on her and her close friend. That surveillance becomes illegal very quickly, and the chief of police himself is informed that it's all happening. Eventually, Peter Maloney discovered that he was being surveilled, And he told his friend Susan Ng. She was incensed.
1: They should be ashamed that they wasted so much time. And, of course, the illegality and the inappropriateness of surveilling their civilian boss. She decided to confront Chief McCormick. And so as soon as I got that information, I called the board together, included the chief, and in front of the other members... I show them that I had written a letter to the Department of Justice, to the Attorney General's office, and say, is there anything I need to know? You know, were any of my conversations gathered? And the department, of course, wrote back to say, well, if there's anything you need to know, we'll tell you, right? Which is a non-answer, which is entirely legal. But what I wanted to do was to show the chief that I had that information.
0: None of this became public until 2007. More than a decade and a half after the surveillance began, Gary Carter's memo was leaked to the media. By then, Julian Fantino had risen to the very top. He had served as chief of police in London, York, and Toronto, and had just been hired to take over the Ontario Provincial Police. But the revelation that Fantino had surveilled the civilian boss of the Toronto Police, was largely met with indifference. Fantino never commented on the case. The provincial government said it was none of their business. And as for Toronto's police board, surely they would be concerned that a former chair had once been illegally surveilled by the province's top cop, right?
5: They actually ordered an investigation not into the the unlawful surveillance of a police board member, but they ordered they ordered an investigation into the leak how did this document leak
1: and by the time that the revelations showed up in the media in granted a different atmosphere and you might have expected people to feel a little bit more accountable for that kind of behavior i would say that the board at that time had lost its nerve
0: and remember project adam that huge investigation into the Italian Mafia, the prosecutions crumbled under mysterious circumstances. Gary Carter, the undercover cop that had first been assigned to surveil Peter Maloney, believes that Project Adam fell apart because the police didn't want to reveal that Fantino and other senior police officers had been illegally spying on Susan Eng. If that's true, it means that the Toronto Police allowed a multi-million dollar investigation into very serious criminal activity collapse because it would have revealed their own misdeeds. Back in 1991, just after he initiated the investigations into Dudley Laws and Susan Eng, Julian Fantino left Toronto. He was hired to be the chief of the London Police Department. Here he is talking about a chaotic scene on the night before Halloween where hundreds of youth were pelting rocks and eggs at passing cars.
4: I tell you sincerely, if any of my police officers are injured in any way, I will be pursuing, to the extent the civil law and the criminal law allow, every recourse. Right back to parents if I can do it.
0: And yes, I do believe he is threatening to go after parents for the actions of their children there, but that's kind of besides the point. Fantino continued to make national headlines as London police chief, and probably the biggest event during his time there was Project Guardian. The London police had busted a giant child pornography ring. The videos were of men abusing children. They'd confiscated hundreds of video and audio tapes as well as photos. Fantino described this all as a sleeping giant in a secretive and pervasive subculture. The London police held a press conference with stacks and stacks of tapes that they said contained the most horrifying images you can imagine. The police laid hundreds of charges against more than 30 men. It was one of the biggest sex crime investigations in Canadian history. The only problem? Most of it was a mirage. Joseph Couture was a journalist who started looking into Project Guardian, and his reporting in Extra, the Queer News outlet, demonstrated that many of the alleged victims had been coerced and threatened into cooperating with the police. Some of them were told that if they didn't reveal the men they'd slept with, they themselves would be charged with prostitution. Except for cases relating to two people, there was actually almost no child pornography involved. Most of the tapes that the police had piled up for the cameras were either normal movies or legal pornography involving adult men. A majority of the charges were for soliciting prostitutes or for drug possession. Soon, Extra, the Globe and Mail, and the CBC were reporting that this was a manufactured moral panic. And as Joseph Couture investigated Project Guardian, the police harassed him and his sources. While he was interviewing one of them at a restaurant, the police came in, stopped the interview, and escorted him out. And at one point, Couture's house was surrounded by cop cars and a canine unit. The intimidation got so bad that the Canadian Committee to Protect Journalists wrote a letter to Julian Fantino demanding that the police stop interfering. Fantino responded with a veiled threat. Quote, At the risk of dignifying Mr. Couture's gratuitous rhetoric, please be advised that Mr. Couture quite properly should be concerned about his relationship with and involvement in the Project Guardian investigation. Involvement which, in due course, will be officially and appropriately addressed. It soon became clear that the child porn ring never existed, though there were isolated instances of child abuse that were uncovered. 17 of the 32 men pled guilty and never fought the charges in court. Many told the CBC that it was because their lawyers pressured them to. The episode got Fantino labeled a homophobe by many, an allegation he aggressively disputes in his memoir. While he was London Police Chief, Fantino applied to be the new chief of the Toronto Police, while Susan Eng was still chair of the board.
1: McCormick was leaving, and so we were hunting for a new chief. And Julian Fantino applied, uh, along with a few others, and we, in the end, did not select him.
0: Eng knew about the surveillance against her by this point. But she says that's not why she didn't vote for Fantino.
1: Julian Fantino was horrible in that interview, regardless of anything else that that he thought was going down. It was the race-based statistics. There was something about that that he thought, that we thought, was the deal-breaker. So he came in prepared to talk about that, but in the most incomprehensible way. The vote was once again
0: leaked, and one of the board members, Father Massey Lombardi, had voted against Fantino. It had been assumed that because Lombardi was also Italian, he would have backed his fellow countrymen. But when it became clear that wasn't the case, Fantino struck back.
1: The net result of that was then Julian Fantino decided to access the Italian language media and write op-eds and give all very long interviews denigrating Father Lombardi calling him any number of horrible names and insinuating all kinds of behavior that sometimes attaches to priests. And it just kept going on. It was awful. And uh, Father Lombardi was disinvited from ribbon cuttings and his community and so on. So I had to write a letter to his board and say, I think you need to discipline your chief and get him to stop this.
0: Despite that setback, Julian Fantino was still in great demand. In 1998, he was hired to lead the York Region Police, taking over for a disgraced chief who had pled guilty to a breach of trust charge. Fantino was seen as stabilizing a police force in chaos. And two years later, he was finally selected to be the new chief of the Toronto Police Service. This was at a time when crime was a growing concern for Torontonians. Here's Fantino speaking during those years.
4: By now, you would probably get the impression that uh, the city of Toronto is going to hell in a handbasket. Major cities everywhere are going through this same kind of difficulty. We're doing what we can, but this is way beyond just a law enforcement problem. This is a problem for the entire community to solve.
0: As Toronto Police Chief, Fantino had to contend with a number of major issues, including SARS, rising gun violence, and revelations that a corrupt Toronto drug squad had operated with impunity for years. He enjoyed the support of the right-leaning Mayor Mel Lastman, but in 2003, a new mayor and a new council were voted in, and so was a new police board. Alan Heisey became the chair of the Toronto Police Board that year. Heise was viewed as a police critic, and within one week, a memo was leaked to the media. The memo was written by a Toronto Police sex crimes investigator, who claimed that Heise had told him that he could understand how someone could be attracted to an 8-year-old. It was an attempt to smear Heise as a pedophile. Heise was pressured to resign, but he refused, A judge was brought in to investigate, and he found that the allegations were untrue and that it was a deliberate smear job from someone within the police department. Here's Fantino, talking to a reporter about the incident at the time, captured in a documentary, Hogtown, The Politics of Policing.
4: Well, it's coming to an end. I haven't seen uh, the outcome, but it should be coming very soon, and I can't prejudge what that is. Police
1: uh, report.
4: Yeah, we're, we're working on the leak piece, and, and that's separate from what. How uh, is that
1: coming? It's coming along. We're, we're,
4: we're just about done with it. Was it inappropriate that the memo was written in the first place? Well, I, I can't. Uh, I can't get into that because uh, I would like to believe that uh, uh, what was written was uh, passed on for people like myself to make a decision on it. I did. Uh, but nothing would justify the memo being released, regardless of what the intent was of the memo being written. But you know, folks, uh, we can point the finger at the police service all you want, but uh, I think it was inappropriate for the for the media to run with that memo anyway. So
0: Fantino explicitly denied leaking the memo, and there is no evidence to suggest that he did. Other police board members had also been intimidated. Olivia Chow had been forced off the board after Fantino threatened to not let her into the police building after she had attended an anti-poverty protest that turned violent. John Fillion, a Toronto city councillor, had embarrassing details about his divorce leaked to the Toronto Sun. Eventually, Fantino's contract was not renewed, but he was hired by the provincial Liberal government to be the head of the Ontario Provincial Police. Fantino would continue to rise, after his term as commissioner of the OPP, Fantino became a politician, running for Stephen Harper's Conservatives in 2010.
5: One's next Conservative member of Parliament, and a friend to us all, Julian Fantino!
0: Yes! Here's Jerry Amernick again.
2: And I was shocked more than anyone when he went into politics, by the way. Because like he would have his hierarchy, you know, and at the bottom were like child pornographic uh, offenders and police killers. And the only one that might be below that was a politician. And then all of a sudden he goes into politics. I I was shocked when he did that.
0: Fantino was named minister for seniors and then a veteran's affairs. And that is where his upward climb finally came to an end. Fantino is viewed as one of the most ineffective ministers in Harper's cabinet and came under fire from veterans groups who accused him of being incompetent and disrespectful.
2: He insults 90-year-old veterans who have the courage to complain. He runs away from the spouse of a PTSD sufferer. He refuses to take any responsibility, so surely the prime minister must. To prevent, prevent any more trouble for veterans, will the prime minister fire this failed minister? Yeah
0: he was shuffled out of that portfolio and lost his seat in 2015. Since then, he's occasionally popped up in the news, most recently for joining a cannabis company, despite the fact that he had once compared legalizing pot to legalizing murder.
2: Well, former Toronto Police Chief and former Conservative MP Julian Fantino has been named Executive Chair of a medical marijuana company. And that has some pot activists furious as Fantino was a longtime advocate against the legalization of pot.
0: He left the company's board earlier this year. Despite our attempts, we were unable to reach Julian Fantino to speak to us for this episode. We've really only scratched the surface of Julian Fantino's career. But Fantino's story is in many ways emblematic of the power that cops wield in this country. As he climbed ever higher through the ranks, so many critics of the police were subjected to malicious prosecution, surveillance, or smears. But that's just what happens to you if you fight the police in Canada. Despite the power and prestige that Julian Fantino enjoyed for decades, he is just one individual. The problems with policing in this country go much further than him. The problems are with the system.
1: I think what we get from having spent time inside the police organization is to understand what pressures are on them that come together at a certain point that make what they do inevitable. So there are a lot of things that happen that make some of these interactions seem like they're born out of malice. But they are institutional failures.
0: Today, Lennox Farrell is retired and living in Niagara Falls. He doesn't think all police officers are bad people, but he says that in his experience, almost all of them are willing to defend and tolerate the ones who are bad. 50 years after he was first detained by the police, the shame and anger he felt are as sharp as ever.
3: I still feel a sense of angst over that nonsense. You are being told that I had tried to snatch a woman's purse. If they hadn't caught somebody and had gone to prison, I could have died.
0: episode of commons for the week if you want to support us click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com this episode relied on reporting from derek finkel minsook lee jerry amernick kirk Mackin, gary kate george gerald hannon joseph couture max allen and many many others this is our first episode in this series and we have a lot of great episodes coming your way so subscribe, share, rate us on Apple Podcasts, all of that stuff. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Commons Pod. You can also email me, Arshi, at Canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Onome. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. And our music is by Nathan Burley.